This is Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois. The podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. And now here's your host, Navy SEAL founder of Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, Rob Dubois. As many listeners know, when I got into life coaching, it was almost by accident. Back in 2008 or 9, I had retired from the Navy and a friend asked me for help with something, personal, professional thing going on in his life, complex, unable to solve it himself. And I said, sure, let's, let's start meeting up and we'll talk about it and I'll give you some insights based on what I see. And he said, cool. And we did. We set up a one or two month arrangement of meeting up for coffee every week or so. And then he solved it. And I said, great, well done, good job, buddy. And I went about my way, but he said, hang on, what do I owe you for the coaching? I said, what's coaching? That's how I got into it. Now, there's there's a, a wide range of qualities and levels of what I would say are, are you know, the what you should invest in, in terms of coaching for one's life. I don't even like the term life coaching anymore because it is so stigmatized with uh, a lot of mutts who get in for a couple of bucks, basically, to try and make a quick buck off of an unregulated industry. There is no control. There's no regulatory controls over coaching like there is in psychology and, and other professional disciplines. So um, we distinguished ourselves at Impact with Impact Coaching. We talk about, rather than personal development, we talk about whole person development, the whole person, body, mind, heart, and soul. And that fifth power, the done zone, healthy boundaries. That was a years-long process. I stumbled through it, fell over every possible obstacle, walked back a couple of times to fall over a couple more again, the same ones, and finally built what we have today, the Unchained course for Impact Unchained, uh, our Impact Coaching Certification, and Impact Actual in its incarnation as you recognize it today. Now, I'd like to fast forward from that excruciating process to uh, to bring on a very special person and uh, our special guest today who did things the right way and actually learned how to understand the human mind and emotions, who go through the clinical process of certifications and, and getting into the industry of actually having not only uh, an actual clinic that, 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 that works with somatics and other things we'll unpack, we'll talk about today, various forms, various techniques for dealing with what a person needs because it isn't one size fits all. It's not take my course and, and you'll be fixed because uh, you're the same as every other man, woman, and child on the planet. That's what a lot of folks are selling. Victoria Fenton is not. Victoria, please say hi in whatever preferred words you like to use over on that side of the pond. Oh, well, hello. Thank you for having me. Oh. <laughs> Tut, cheerio. And I was looking for something fancier. Uh. I know, but I'm, I'm not that fancy. I know that my accent makes me feel like I'm literally part of the royal family, but it isn't well, it's, the it's case, I'm to afraid. Us. Right. Uh, if we even know what posh means. And of course, you're not on that side of the pond, right? You come from I'm there, not. but you're here now on this, on, in the States? I am here in the States, yes. I live in Austin, Texas. So I'm currently this side of the pond and did not realize that my accent would be such a selling point. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, you got to use what you got. Right. I become more British. I become more posh. The uh -huh. more people like, it's like I, my vowels change. That's and funny. I become even more, yeah. <laughs> so you don't just, uh, just do the, the slang on the street kind of a sound like you'd do back no. home with the folks. I lean into it. Uh -huh. I'm like, <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, you know, my book, Powerful Peace, is subtitled A Navy Seal's Lessons on Peace from a Lifetime at War. I was loath to do that. I was loath to put the name Navy Seal on it. But our next book mm-hmm. coming out uh, on total self-mastery is, is going to also have a subtitle with the Navy Seal blankety blank, you know, lessons on. Because if you have something of value to deliver, you might as well get the hook in. There's nothing unethical about that. Mm. It's interesting. It's taken me a long time to own that because I ran a clinic on Harley Street in London, which is the big medical street in London for around seven years. And I kind of just don't mention it, but it's a thing. Like it's a, it's a really big thing. So yeah, I, I get that with learning to lean into where we've come from. Right, right. Especially like look at our special operations world. We're called the quiet professionals because the real quiet professionals don't seek to pat themselves on the, or break their arms, patting themselves on the back. Or as one old, well, not old, uh, Brian's a young young admiral, a friend of mine, he told me when I asked him about uh, how he felt about my having gone public with a book, he said, it's valuable. The stuff you're, sell- you're talking about in Powerful Peace is very important. The world needs to hear these ideas. He said, most of the guys, though, are just grabbing the mic. And he was talking about us, guys who wear seal tridents. And then it was, it's, it's, a, it's a shame. It's unfortunate. And God bless guys. You know, people make a living the way they can. But if you compromise your actual ethics to lie, to misrepresent, as a couple of guys I will not name are doing and have done, and they have a lot of success with it by misrepresenting themselves and what they actually did in the teams, that's not, that's not okay in my world. We need to be authentic. Like you say, I did this thing in, in, in London. I did this thing in the SEAL teams. Uh, but be honest about it and let it be enough and then build on that. What have you done for me lately in Janet Jackson's world? You know, We don't just look back and, and make up some <laughs> fictitious uh, uh, legendary uh, past. Which, by the way, as you were just talking about, by the time this show goes to air, we might actually find that, depending on when we, we publish, the queen may have passed because right now as we're taping, you've just mentioned that she's not well. Yes. Right now as we are recording, she's not well. And I think most of the Royal family are being sort of beckoned up to Balmoral to, to be with her, which we can, one can only assume means that this is nearing the end. Mm -hmm. When the doctors say, get everybody home, that means get everybody home. Yeah. Yeah. It tends to mean that. And she's, She's had a really good innings and she's done even well, even like better than anybody expected since the death of her husband. And, you know, it's where she loves. She, the Queen loves Balmoral and always has. So when she retreats there and, and all the family get jetted up on various military aircraft, you think, yeah, this is, this is probably the time. Right on. Well, prayers with the family, you know, royal or not, noble or not, fancy or not, rich or not. It's a family and it's a loved one. Mm. Oh, it is. And I have... When I ran my clinic in Harley Street, I did have connections to some members of the royal family, and they are a family. That's that's who they are at the end of the day. And with all of the problems that a family has, with all of the complications and the infighting and all of that, just done on a grand scale in the public eye. And it's very it's a very strange existence to contemplate oh, yeah. when we think about it. Yeah, it's like the original Kardashian situation where you are where everything you argue about happens publicly. Where if I don't and want to be part of the family, it, no choice. They didn't say yes, please. Can you right. send a Netflix crew in or whatever it is? <laughs> exactly. It's, it's Nobody asked for this. Like, <laughs> they were born to it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, I mm. was, uh, as we mentioned uh, off camera, uh, I actually had the dumb luck opportunity to be in, in London. The one night of my life in London was on her Golden Jubilee. So mm-hmm. I was there at 50 years and uh, got a mm-hmm. couple of trinkets and cool things from when she was went up to to Croton. I forget where it was. A lot of, lot of time outside the city and 
bought up little things like the 25-year Jubilee uh, teacup that, that goes it's matching. So, and then got an inaugural um, uh, inaugural pamphlet or what? So the brochure that was published the day and the week, well, the big year or inauguration. Yeah. Uh, so it's a. I, you I did one better than me. I was nowhere near there. I, I saw the fly past on the television. Did you see the the military fly pass? And yes. All the stuff that happened. Yeah. Well, I was there with Sir Elton John, so not to drop names or anything, but Sir Elton <laughs> John thinks Sir I'm pretty cool. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I do know uh, that. Um, and this, a buddy of mine, Chalky Davies, is a photographer to all the rock stars from Led Zeppelin on. We're talking all the rock stars. Um, knows everybody, has walked with everybody, has dined with everybody, has slept over at their at their palaces or mansions all the time. He said Sir Elton is the most generous man he's ever known. And I was really moved. And this is not what we're what we're talking about today. This is on <laughs> right. whole person development and clinical, you know, approaches to making people's lives better. Although but Elton's been through this. a lot. Yep. Elton has been through a lot to get to where he's got to in terms of his addictions, his financial overspending, all of that sort of stuff. And to see and that's the feedback I get every time when I know people who know Elton. Generous to a fault. Absolutely lovely guy, genuine. It, heart of gold and and runs amazing charity you know that sometimes he speaks about and a lot of times his charity work is on the down low uh -huh. so yeah but work to get there that is really good to hear you know I, I'm, and i'm not just you know fanboying over a rock star here it just really is amazing to see a human being that that does that does thrive in his design that's what i'm always talking about here at impact is within your design so many young men come to me and say Oh wow, Navy SEAL! I want to be a Navy SEAL, and I say, why? You know, uh, it's, I'm not suggesting it's a bad thing. I'm saying, why? Why do you want that? Because you saw a movie? Because you want to get more chicks? Because you think you'll, you'll be be admired by more guys? Because you'll be able to fight better? What is your reason for that? Because there's a unique design to each one of us. Some should be florists. Some should be librarians. Some should be nurses. Some should be seals. And uh, Sir Elton obviously is. He has followed a very unique path. As the movie showed, <laughs> to show how culturally astute I am. I watched a movie, but uh, uh, that was a really, really amazing uh, narrative arc and to, to, to see where he's, uh, how he got, like you said, where he got. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone has those amazing stories. Why did you want to be a Navy SEAL? Not that this is my podcast, but I'm no, going to ask No, it's actually a, question a great anyway. question. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, and one I've answered on different occasions, but always consistently the same. There's two reasons. One, to test myself. It was my version of the Sundance uh, or what the Native Americans in some traditions would do where they tie themselves, uh, pierce their skin to tie themselves to a to a pole and then dance away from it until the, the skin tears. A rite of passage. I have a Maasai warrior friend, a Maasai guy. I mean, Maasai warrior kind of goes together, the two words, but he's a Maasai, a tribesman, James Kivuyo over in uh, Tanzania. And he said that their rite of passage, which all the boys want to do at 15, is a public circumcision without any anesthesia. And they can't flinch. So that is an example of, do I want to do that publicly? No. No, I don't want to do that publicly. <laughs> do I want to be tested beyond the limits of my finger and thumb skills with an Xbox console? Yes. And I think every young man does. And I think every young person does. 
And, and you know, we could, I mean, I'm sure we could do an entire episode. We might do an entire episode on gender one of these days, talking about women's circles and rights of masculine passage and different ways that we, we uniquely exist in the world. And not only for, again, gender specific, you know, not talking about the plumbing of a man, man or a woman, but talking about the identity, how the person re- recognizes who they are in the, in the order of things. Which is what we're going back full circle to the Elton John thing and finding your path, you know, who you're supposed to be. By the way, apparently, according to Chalky, he uh, is besties. They're literally BFF with the queen. And uh, they mm. actually trade houses at uh, at Christmas and, and New Year's. <laughs> they visit each other's houses. How cool is that? Well, I mean, they're not houses. They are epic, like, yeah, like their extensive blocks. estates. <laughs> they visit their blocks. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And not occupy a wing. <laughs> yep. 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 Uh, Elton's coming over uh, open, and get the get the, the south wing open for us so he can have him and his, <laughs> his entourage. Yeah. Free up the third swimming pool and the fourth tennis court. Right. Because his people, they need a swimming pool. Yeah. Right. That was what Chalky mentioned to me about talking, you know, beyond the grand scale or, or I think it's actually more meaningful on the small scale. They say it's the small, the little things that count, right? Or, or it's mm-hmm. the thought that counts. And I think that goes far beyond our grand gestures of being president of the United States or queen of something. The, the things we do, the small gestures in life. And this was what Chalky mentioned. He was walking in London or someplace with Elton doing shots one day and he had his entourage and, uh, and they ran into a young lady who, well, a young woman who had a baby or two on her arms said, oh my God, Sir Elton. And she just gushed and, and freaked out because she was meeting Elton John. And he was the most gracious, kind, sweet, time investing in her person. He wasn't like, you know, uh, sawed off. I've got I've, I've to go be important somewhere. He spent time. He <laughs> talked to her. He understood what her life was about. And Chalky said, this actually makes me feel emotional whenever I, whenever I recount this. He said, she had talked about how hard her life was right now and that her, her man had left her and he'd stuck her with a broken car and she was really having a hard time making things work out without that transportation. And he's like, oh, dear, 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 you know, kind of just gave her pats on the shoulder and, and, and was loving on her. And then as soon as they parted ways and her life was made for that day or that year, she's like, yeah, guess what I did, you know, to all of her friends. I met Elton John. But as, as she was leaving, when she was out of earshot, like you said, privately, he turned to his assistant and said, get her a Camry. And I thought, holy shit, what a human. Mm-hmm. Mm. And when people have resources, that's the size of gesture that they can make. Yes. And yet... I think the thing that I've realized in my many decades of being in this kind of personal development medical world, I think there's this, how you be and how you embody your essence matters as the core of it. And what gesture you're then able to make, whether it's, you know, just smiling at the grocery store clerk and actually just making their day by having an actual conversation rather than just treating them like a servant. That's enough. That is actually massively impactful. And when we have more resources, we're able to give more. We're able to do more in that kind of gesture way. But gestures can be tiny, as you said. It's just having that extra ability to be kind and to smile. And that comes from being confident and comfortable in yourself, I think. Kindness is a superpower. Mm -hmm. It costs nothing, or relatively speaking, nothing. A Camry to him is the equivalent of a small cup of coffee for me. Mm Mm-hmm. And kindness is so undervalued in our divisive, dividing society where people mm-hmm. say, don't, don't mistake my kindness for weakness and things like that. Well, I, don't, I understand the fear. 
I understand the fear mm. because there are those who will exploit kindness and they will take advantage. However, uh, kindness is still a very powerful thing. Kindness and gentleness, in fact, being gentle. When I did my grandfather's eulogy, I, I highlighted those two words. He was a kind and gentle man. Mm-hmm. And I'll admire that any day over John Wayne, any day over Chuck Norris and punching mm-hmm. bad guys in the face, which is important. I mean, I have a job of punching bad guys in the face. I'm not discounting the importance of that within our greater system of humanity. Mm-hmm. But being kind to each person you meet with five interactions or 50 interactions per day, that multiplies mm-hmm. far, far, far beyond the power of a guy that can punch people in the nose. Mm-hmm. Well, and it makes the guy that punches people in the nose more powerful. If for the majority of the time he's kind and gentle, right. that force and that you know power is only used when it's appropriate. That is the key. I mean, I, when I released Powerful Peace, there was a lot of shock from the market. And they said, a Navy SEAL writing about peace does not <laughs> compute. But they didn't reject it. They just were, it was kind of like a gentle slap in the face. Like, wait, this doesn't correspond. Uh, people told me at readings and, and, and signings, they said, you know, if you were just one more guy with long hair, which I can't support anymore because of my disability, if you were just <laughs> one more guy with long hair and a ponytail and a, and, a, and a headband saying peace is important, I wouldn't listen to you. But mm-hmm. you're a seal saying it. So I, I may not agree with you, but I have to listen. And that was it. Mm-hmm. That was the key. That was the hook. That was the way in to have the conversation begin, which is where mm. solutions come from. Mm. Mm. It's that whole ability to have conversations is a lost art, I think. Ability to have healthy debate, ability to actually enter into conversations with someone with a different opinion or someone who doesn't fit the box. Like, so I want you to be this person because I painted a picture of you and then you show up and you're not that person. It's like neurologically confusing. And if at that point we can go, okay, be curious, that's amazing. But if we go, it's confusing. I don't like it. I'm going to throw it back, throw something back at you. That's when we get into difficulties because we're not actually having conversations and trying to learn at that point. Well, that's, that goes to listening with the intent to understand, right? Stephen Covey right. And, and a lot of marital counseling that I did when married uh, was you know, focused on hear you know, and give feedback and do paraphrasing and all the, all the listening skills, including the tile. Yeah. One cool thing mm-hmm. I learned was there's a stick, another Native American tradition, as I understand. There's a, a stick that's the talking stick. And we used it in Africa. Yeah on the migrations video when we're doing the documentary for national geographic uh, i'd never heard of it but one of the people had had this stick they said grabbed a stick and said when you hold this stick you can speak nobody else can Mm -hmm. and and it was a way of slowing down the debate or the dispute we had going on at the time and it was very effective and i had a marriage counselor hand me a piece of floor tile say you got the floor i said oh i get it i see how this works and then he said, That's when you're done, one. you hand it to her and then she can respond. But she has to first say, I think I know what you mean and here's what I think. And then you respond to that. Nope, that's not quite it. Clarify. But the person who has the floor has the floor. You're holding a tile and everybody in the room can see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good – I've never used that or heard of that, but I love that. I do think that the pace that we live is one of the most damaging things for us right now. We live so fast and we're trying to get to the next conversation or we're listening – just so the person can stop talking so we can say what we're trying to say. And therefore there's this kind of like, we're not really listening. We just want to get our voice heard. And I think that having this kind of the slowing down where, oh, hang on, I need to pass a tile and then paraphrase what you've just said. It means you have to be in both brain states of listening and receiving and also then assimilating your felt sense experience, your lived reality to then give back to the other person. 
And that's why we have so many problems today, isn't it? Because people will not take the time to listen. As you said, there's the presupp- presupposition of what that person's about. Oh, it's a Navy SEAL. Oh, it's a librarian. I know what that is. I, I know because I saw a movie or I read a book or somebody told me about what a librarian is one time. And that's what mm-hmm. that becomes, the, the, you know, to use, um, oh, I can't remember her name, uh, Carol Dweck, the mindset. Mm-hmm. She talks about growth mindset and fixed mindset. You're in a fixed mm-hmm. mindset if you assume you know what a librarian or a SEAL is. And mm-hmm. in my philosophy, that's a death. It's a form of death while me- metabolically functional. You're not growing. Mm-hmm. You're not hearing changes and, and not adapting your own perspective. Mm-hmm. And needing people to be one thing. It's like I've always struggled in my life and my career. It's like people say, well, what do you do or who are you? And I'm like, how long have you got? Because it's quite a long explanation. <laughs> and there's like there's a lot of different facets to what I do because it's the culmination and the like the emanation of my 36 years of existence and 20 years of that being in this kind of like personal development, everything's moving world. And I think people want to have fixed state for things like just be something like find your identity, find your purpose, and then live it out as if, as if we never evolve and grow. And from the field of somatics, we talk about this in terms of the shaping that we take over the course of our lifetime, true somatics. So original somatic Uh, kind of ethos around how the human organism orients to reality and how it takes on the shape of the thing that it needs to be in that moment. But the whole tenet being that we don't, we don't, we're not just born and then that's it. We kind of grow and evolve. And that doesn't stop when we physically stop technically growing. We keep growing, we keep evolving. And in our weird Western culture, we see growing from an adult perspective as aging, i.e. negative, oh my God, we need to stop it at all costs, we need to prevent this kind of aging thing. We don't see constant evolution and growth, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, all of the things as, oh, we're not a fixed state. We're like a rolling stone that will gather moss, ironically. We will gather all these things that we are and we will change over time. And we're supposed to, (laughs) that's literally the point of life. So when people say like, what do you do? Or give me your, you know, elevator pitch of your 30 second bio. I'm like, uh, can't (laughs) like, this is top of mind right now. And this is great. And there's all of this other stuff. I can relate to that. That's why there's so many blog posts out there by Rob and so many different perspectives and what total self-mastery is about and what whole person development is about. The defining is one of the hardest things I'll bet uh, you can relate to as a small business owner who's trying to establish trying to establish a clear definition, like you said. You know, How, how do you say it in 25 seconds or less? Mm-hmm. And, and that's been something I've been wrestling with for many years because there's so mm-hmm. much to being a human being. It's about compassion mm-hmm. and competence and courage and character. All the you know, I like I like my alliteration. It, it's about all of these things, but not they're 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 complementary and not mutually exclusive. I can't just build my mm-hmm. biceps or just build my capacity to have a, a meaningful conversation with a loved one who's suffering. They both mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd, and the irony for me is like. All of my work is based on complex systems evolution, and yet to market that, technically speaking, I should like redu- reduce that into the reductionist philosophy of how to do an Instagram post or a reel or a meme or anything that's like 10 seconds worth of content. And it doesn't work. So, so yeah, as a small business owner, I struggle with that. And I have had to split everything I do up so that Google works on my stuff, you know? Right. And that is almost like suffocation, but sometimes you just have to play the game. 
That's right. It's very much like that. A football game, um, in in your definition of a football game, you know, has rules yeah, and boundaries. Football, you mean? <laughs> yeah, real football. <laughs> real football. You must have seen the video about the guy that the the uh, the keeper that keeps stopping the ball with his face. It's hysterically funny, and I recommend <laughs> no. it to everybody. Oh my god, you have to watch. I've seen it a couple of times over the past couple of years. I'm not sure who what genius has built this, but. You know, he's done the impossible. He just, he stopped a fifth kick, and um, but he's actually crawling away from the goal because he can't stop getting hit in the face. <laughs> and the, and, so, and the, the ball, the kick goes wide, bounces off the bolt goal post and hits him in the face again. <laughs> he's like, please save me. <laughs> that is the definition of accidental success. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. My, my whole success plan, the serendipity success plan, dumb luck, being in London mm-hmm. one night of my life and as the queen jubilee being in paris one night and accidentally got into a uh, an inexpensive hotel that was on the seine looking at notre dame um, and i got it at a major discount because the the ac was out but there was no requirement for ac just i believe that there's a massive potential in human life in flow going mm-hmm. with the flow and it's been spoken mm-hmm. about for millennia you know the the buddhist perspective or the hindu perspective just don't stop fighting everything right same, it applies in our modern life if we just say, okay, I'm going to see what happens and go with that. I'm going to respond, not react or try to control the world. Yeah, but we don't do that. We don't. No, I don't do that. <laughs> well, and, and, <laughs> well, and the reason we don't is is all the stuff that we've been through. So trauma and the things that we go through teaches us that we're not safe. Therefore, we have to create an, an attachment to an outcome that creates tension around the current moment, the present moment. So flow isn't possible. And then we have all of these um, like tools to get us into flow state, which are great. But then I kind of look at them going, well, hang on a second. Our natural state is flow state. How about we remove some of the tools and don't be in this kind of like, oh, I need the 12-step morning routine. I need to meditate for at least, I don't know, 17 hours a day to have any sense of peace. I need to like, my evening needs to, I I need my supplement stack that takes me from like 6 p.m. till 10 when I need to go. It's like, this feels tension-based, not flow-based, even if... 90% 90% of those practices are technically flow state ones, said with inverted commas. And it's it's that weird, we, we spend money doing the thing that is our natural state. And the reason we do that is because of all of the patterns we have attached to and adapted ourselves to being and to performing because of our history. That reminds me of a, a, a quote from Dalai Lama, the current Dalai Lama, that I cannot, I can't quote it, uh, but I, I can paraphrase. He's... He asked, he was asked what surprises him about mankind. And he said, humans spend their money doing things to look a certain way and they become unhealthy and unnatural in the process to look and be and be perceived and be admired in certain ways. And those, that, that investment is destructive. And then they have to reinvest to repair the damage they did with their lifestyle that was not healthy, mm-hmm. out of flow. Yep. So, so trauma and somatic methodology. These are, mm-hmm. I mean, you and I talked before uh, in recent months about mm-hmm. trauma. And the and in fact, um, I'll be uh, guesting on your podcast specifically because we're talking about trauma and how these days, you know, Navy SEALs are really at the forefront of, of alternative therapies. We talk about the, the magic mushrooms and licking toads and things like that is one obvious path. There's the weightlessness chambers, the floating, floating tanks. Mm-hmm. And there's 
above all talking, talking, you know, the body keeps the score is a, is a, a classic that I've read about trauma. And, uh, the author is apparently highly admired, although he's kind of a dickhead. Uh, they say he was a self-important ego, uh, based jerk who was a brilliant psychologist. And he talks about, uh, how talking talk therapy was something that they had to struggle in the early years to get people to do and say, you know, get the psychologist to say, stop giving meds to the psychiatrist and, and just get them to engage And that. And that's what I talked about in front of powerful peace. Uh, there's a single page I wrote to veterans and recruits, which means those who have been scarred by war or will be scarred by war. And I repeated one sentence in that one page that nothing else was repeated through the whole book, but the one sentence was talk about it, talk about it. And that's where, I mean, you have, like I said earlier, you have a wide range of interventions you can apply because of your skills and certifications and, and experience. What can you help uh, me and us understand better what somatics is? What the, what does that even mean? I know I can know the dictionary, but I don't know what it means in your use. Sure, and I think you're right to question what it actually means because I think a lot of people are using it incorrectly at this moment in time, and people are using it lazily to mean the body. Um, and you mentioned Bessel van der Kolk and the body keeps the score, which is great, and he kind of ended up at talking, talk about it, talk it out, all of that. Somatics, somatics as a field takes that further and essentially if the body keeps the score the body keeps the score it's not about talking about it it's not really about cognitively lending mental context or explanations or necessarily revisiting the past experiences although there is a, a place for that absolutely in certain kinds of supportive therapeutic settings the realm of somatics in particular somatic experiencing which is from peter levine um, and all of this kind of work around how can we liberate that score from the body, essentially? How can we allow it to release the, you know, the agenda that it's keeping around its orientation to life? And all of that starts with the fact that soma really means living wholeness. It actually suits your whole systems idea incredibly well. It is about the wholeness. So there is a physiological root for things. There's a nervous system orientation and not so much memory. It's not like the nervous system is necessarily remembering the exact events that happened, but it will remember enough of the things that were threatening in historic past environments to repeat the response that it had or to orient to the environment as if it is threatening or dangerous or damaging. Because they worked so at when that time. It was essential at that time. hundred percent. Yeah. All of these patterns, everything that we do, that we look at, even people who come to coaches wanting to change a thing. And I say this in my training, it's like you're the, the, I train coaches and it's like the clients come to you wanting to change the very thing that you have to start from the perspective of this thing you want to change was adaptive and perfect at the time and is still okay because your body is still choosing to do it. And typically we rail against the very thing that we want to change. And most most of the work with gentle, gentle, slow somatic experiencing in particular, but the work that I do and the work that I work through with my coaches is slowly changing the orientation to the world by supporting alternatives and opposites. So if my orientation is threat, everyone's damaging, creating the experience where that is proven to not be true by having a different nervous system experience of being with another. And I think that's a lot of the magic of a coaching container. That coach shows up and no matter what you bring, no matter what you say, everything is 
welcome. Everything's perfectly honored and you feel safe to be all sorts of messy. And that in and of itself is curative in in essence. It's changing your lived experience and it's changing something from, oh, everything is threatening, damaging, dangerous into, oh, but there's this other experience that I now have. There's this knowledge that I have that sometimes it's not. And that slow process over time using various techniques, but definitely not running back in to like recount the trauma. Let's talk about it. Let's actually talk about the thing that was the most stressful thing because that risks re-traumatizing us. We are literally dredging up from our body, from our mind, that memory. And everyone knows this when you break it down. It's like when you ask someone to remember something, it's not just a cognitive mental landscape that you create. You're kind of putting yourself there. You feel the imagery come back. You, You might feel the physical, oh, I remember that feeling that I had and that sensation. And just pointing this out to people, you can explain that memory is much more than a mental thing. It's a whole body felt sense with a cognitive layer in there. And so when you're talking about healing, particularly from stressful historic memories, it's about understanding that the felt sense is what needs to change so that the cognitive layering can shift accordingly. So it's an association with what Mm -hmm. happened before and what, what you experienced. Like I remember there's a flower that I smelled as a boy that I would occasionally get a uh, whiff of in California when I was walking around. And it was <clears throat> it was very, very pleasant experience that I re-experienced. I had a flashback to nothing specific. I couldn't, couldn't picture the circumstances, but I could remember how positive it felt, safe, which was not part of my story as a child. Uh, there are reasons why you know I have patterns, behavior patterns, and belief patterns, uh, as each one of us has. And I've talked about it more and more openly with uh, with regard to trauma therapy, which by God's grace, I've got this amazing person I'm working with. And, and of course, I'm in a program for combat veterans with PTSD. And it's, you know, that's so, it's almost becoming cliche. You know, we hear the, hear the, the assumptions about PTSD. Oh, PTSD. Well, first of all, it's a combat thing. No, <laughs> trauma is a human thing. And PTS is part of what humans get. And combat is one really, really good place to get trauma. That's how it works. Childhood also mm-hmm. is a really good place to be. Sexual violence is a really good place to be. As far as if you really want to get some nice trauma, those, those are great sources. And in The Body Keeps the Score, he talks about the huge distinction between childhood trauma and event-based trauma, like losing your buddy as he bleeds out next to you or the uh, amputating car crash. The childhood trauma, which I have a big batch of a lot of different things, <laughs> from from early years to to being in the military in the combat uh, zones all those years, and to tease them apart is really a big part of the process, isn't it? To say, okay, what? Because there's different interventions. You deal with that one instant car crash differently than you do with five years of deprivation. And the complexity of it comes because, and I think the complexity in dealing with uh, veterans with PTSD is because those event-based traumas that happened in the course of their work all fall on top of a different genesis, a different childhood, a different origin story. The the catastrophe, if I could be that bold, is that a lot of people who end up in, in the kind of military do have various kinds of traumatic childhoods as well as then exposing themselves to event-based trauma. But to sort of delineate the science a little bit, if you have what we now term as developmental trauma or complex PTSD, 
Essentially, that is you've had a traumatic experience or set of experiences or even life. And think of trauma, not just capital T trauma, lots of bad things happen, but also just poverty can be traumatic. Absent parents is traumatic. You know, present parents who are kind of violent is traumatic. Inconsistency of love can give the nervous system this layering of, I don't feel safe because I have no idea what's coming in the door on a nighttime. This is all traumatic as a, as a legacy. And if that happens in those first, particularly the first seven years of life, essentially your foundation isn't laid. So you don't know what home base is. You don't have safety encoded into your nervous system anywhere. If you then as an adult get any kind of event-based trauma, whether that's a car accident or war or anything that happens, even to an extent the last few years that we've all been through with this crazy pandemic stuff where it's been really traumatic to live through, if you go through that without the foundation, without that home base of safety, it is even more destabilizing because you've no idea where you're trying to get back to from the process. You've got no idea where am I supposed to end up how do I find safety again? Because you've got no lived memory of the safety that you're supposed to be finding. So it's a form of wandering emotionally and mentally and probably practically in terms of lifestyle and occupation. And I know I've wrestled with that myself in my lifetime. And I think that uh, people in that, in that segment are basically just saying, well, I know I need to eat food and I know I need X number of dollars to buy food or acquire food. And so I'll get, that's what I go for. And here's the job I'll seek, not because I'm looking for a life or a career, a lifestyle, but because I got to eat food and have a place to keep shelter and the basic minimums. And, and we have, we hear about people not living up to the potential. That sounds like it's related where they just say, I'll just do what I got to do to eat and be safe uh, physically. Well, and people don't even know that they have potential that needs to be lived out. People don't, tend to, these sorts of people don't tend to think, oh goodness, I have a great mission inside me that is part of my trajectory in this life. It's essentially, I don't know where I belong. I don't know how to trust other human beings because I never had the experience of that being modeled to me. I don't know how to find any kind of sense of connection community. So how do I find belonging oh, I will just fake it to fit in. I will create the circumstances where I kind of, this is part of the um, the ventral vagal concept in, sorry, complex in polyvagal theory. It's like socialization. It's really healthy. We're designed to exist in community. We're designed to connect to one another. We're designed to metabolize our traumas together as a group, if you like. And, you know, it takes a village to raise a child is a really important thing. But if we are not stable within our, ourselves, we tend to think, how do I fit in in a fawning response or an appeasing response. It's how do I people please? How do I make myself just sacrifice everything that I have to make everyone else around me love me? And that is a, a highway to feeling terrible within because everything about you becomes about everyone else. Mm -hmm. And you're then dependent on external approval, external validation, all of the things that we think, oh, it's lovely to receive. It's lovely to receive that if it's additional. It's lovely to get that if it's because of you. And if someone's praising you for being you, feels amazing. If someone's praising you for the thing that you've tried to adopt to please them, it's always a bit empty, that compliment. Well, you have, the, as you mentioned, people-pleasing is a very common phrase that I have heard in my addiction recovery for the past 30 years, being in a in clean and sober lifestyle. You know, we encourage each other. Like you said, the community of healing, of processing trauma together is what the 12-step mm -hmm. programs are all about, I think, and, and other effective organizations or groups where people can talk about it and 
deal with it and learn new strategies and learn new skills and say, oh, I haven't tried that. Thanks for the idea. Let me apply it. Mm-hmm. But the people-pleasing is it makes sense that uh, where a person lacks self-esteem, they're saying, I'm not good enough, so I'll do whatever it takes to seem good enough. We used mm-hmm. to call it a shit-filled Twinkie. As I felt <laughs> right. yeah, yes. in my addiction, I felt like a shit-filled Twinkie. I didn't want anybody to know what I was on the inside, and so I just looked as good as possible on the outside. And I'll bet you more than one listener hearing this can say, oh, shit, I really relate to that. That is really, really uncomfortable because that's what I do right now. With my creatine mm-hmm. and my tanning booths and my cosmetic surgeries and all the things, always try I'm – not, I'm not judging any of those things I listed – or any of the other 10,000 things people do for their appearance. As you mentioned, it's nice to have admiration if it's based on something that's real. But the falseness feels horrible. I mm. was happy to be dead. You know, the death wish thing, saying I'd rather be dead than de- deal with this living in fear somebody will know what I am because I feel like I'm garbage and I don't want anybody to know because they'll reject me and that's a form of death. Mm. And I think that's another reason why the group settings are so powerful. It's like, oh, you feel like garbage too? <gasps> Somebody else. Oh my goodness. There is a, there's another person who maybe from different for different reasons or from a different perspective, but actually feels the same kind of incongruence that I do. I'm not alone. And it doesn't almost matter where you find those connection points. I have a thing about not staying in that moment of, oh, let's share our victimhood together and just exchange these woe is me stories. I don't love that. But a lot of the times that begins with that genuine, oh, I'm not alone because someone else feels like they're a complete fraud. They are showing up with one face to the world, but inside they feel like death warmed up and maybe not even that far warmed up, just death. And there is this sense of, if I feel like a fraud, but this person over there that I see doing that thing also, oh, hang on a second. This is, this is endemic. This is, this is a problem and I'm not alone. And maybe sharing my experience or having others share their experience with me can just destigmatize it. It's not necessarily that we then need to do anything with it. You know, just the essence of, you know, breaking the surface on that Twinkie or whatever and showing your shit to the world and then going, nothing happened. Nobody said anything. In fact, people were really lovely. And in fact, people were like, oh, yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you're like, oh, this is just, this is okay to be for now. We can still want to change it back to that paradox. It's like, we can always want to be better. We can always want to evolve. And this is just who I am right now. And it's not just, this is enough. This is, this is, this shit that I feel is totally biologically, mentally, psychologically, everything appropriate given the shit that I've been through. It would right. be surprising right. if I didn't feel or do or say or think these things. It would That would be weird. But this just is contextual. It's consistent with everything I've been through to date. And from there, that just frank acceptance of, okay, this is, this is, this is pretty understandable. This is okay. Then you can make progress. It's one one shockingly revelatory simple fact that I was that I was I was taught by a, a PTS therapist was I always talked about my dysfunctional behavior dysfunctional behavior dysfunctional behavior when my dysfunctional behavior happened and I did this you know I was dysfunctional behavior at seven or years of age or six or eight 
And she said, that wasn't dysfunctional. That was the definition of functional. In the circumstances you were living, like you said, context, uh, contextual, in the circumstances of that, you did what you had to do because you were small and unprepared and unsupported. I'm not, I'm re- I'm not oversharing here about my own life, but trying to speak generically to the, to the experiences of children who have suffered in, de- as you said, the various forms of trauma, deprivation, even lack of love. We have stories about uh, children, babies dying of uh, non-loving, not, I forget the term, uh, no, failure to thrive. Mm-hmm. When an orphanage just gives them the basic food and water they need and changing their diapers, children can die from having mm-hmm. all their needs met, which is counterproductive or counterintuitive until we understand that the needs go beyond the food and the shelter and the rest. Right. Especially to touch. Holding. Yes. Like just being held is so supportive to the human, the evolving human nervous system. And actually, I look at all the baby devices out there on the market right now. A lot of them are trying to decrease the quantity of touch and restoring. Mm. There's like a, there's a crib that you can buy that actually didn't like rock the baby back to sleep and you don't need to actually get up in the middle of the night and hold the thing because uh-huh. it feels like it's a mother walking. I'm like, it does not feel like it's a mother walking. <laughs> it's literally <laughs> not what it feels like. It feels like the motion, right. but there's no heartbeat. There's no, there's no human auric connection. And they're probably going to like evolve it. So there's a heartbeat thing, uh-huh. soundtrack playing and it warms up slightly Still not the mother walking into the bedroom and holding mm-hmm. the baby and walking backwards and forwards. I don't care how tired the mother is. Right, right. That's the raised by robots is where we're headed. Right. And with our little supplement right, but not raised. instead of meals. Well, right. Right, yes. But it's not, that's not, I mean, there's a lot of problems with the way we are raising our children. And there's a lot of problems with the way we're not raising our children. And I think when we get into all of that territory, we could be talking for hours and hours and mm-hmm. never really resolve the problem. And I think we end up in this kind of strange world where we're creating solutions to problems that we're also creating. And I'm great at those solutions to those problems. I've literally made a life and a career out of resolving the problems. I also know people who are very invested in resolving the problem at source, i.e. not creating trauma to begin with. And that's fascinating to me because I would love to be out of a job. Mm -hmm, (laughs) I would love to be unemployed. And yet I'm seeing myself get busier and busier and busier because people are now thankfully talking about trauma, but it's just bringing it all to the fore. And people are like, oh my goodness, you mean this chronic illness that I just thought was like genetics and I had to live with is actually to do with my childhood trauma or my unmet needs or my orientation to the world, which is one of threat. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And that means we've got ingredients to help you deal with it, right? but you have to then deal with it. You don't just get to sit with your immunosuppressants and your steroids and your drugs that are going to offset the impact of those and your antacids, which are going to create further problems with the gut biome. And, and the, you know, the laundry list of medications, because that's where a lot of people with complex chronic illness end up. But the alternative is actually more complicated in inverted commas again. It's like you don't you don't just get the 12 medication prescription or indeed the 24 supplement prescription. It's, oh, we actually need to address the way the nervous system is relating to the world around it, because that's what's driving your complex immune condition, your complex, you know, any kind of autoimmune thing, any fatigue, chronic pain picture, it's all nervous system orientation to the world, which has been correctly at the time changed so that you retreat or hide. 
and now is maladaptive or looks maladaptive because it doesn't suit the current situation? It is, uh, I see five new shows lining up for us here because these topics are so <laughs> critical because it is prevention. Now, we have Dr. John on periodically, about every six weeks. Dr. John, my my good friend from Oklahoma, uh, who talks about, as a chiropractor, he talks about the mind-body connection, the the energy flow, the alignment, the critical nature of alignment. And, and I forget, mm-hmm. I, I always forget the author, but the, it was... Edison or some other big thinker that said uh, the doctor of the future will focus on prevention above all. No medications, no Mm -hmm. treatments. Teach them. Don't hurt yourself. And then there's nothing to treat. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're doing here. You're talking about the origin of the human maladaptation or or maladies in general. So Mm -hmm. much of it Mm -hmm. is preventable at the root. If we just open Mm -hmm. our minds, stop being fixed mindset, become growth mindset, and accept not everything I believe is accurate Maybe I can learn some new things. Maybe I can stop being such a macho man and, and talk about it or experience, uh, recognize my fear in the, the inner child stuff, which is so loathsome to think about. We don't want to, macho guys don't like to think <laughs> about the inner child. That's not a thing. I'm, an, I'm a man. Right. So, it's, uh-huh. and, and you mentioned uh, the phrase you talked about uh, with coaching. You said it's safe to be everything messy. That phrase reminds me of the 12 step work of our sharing, uh, you know, taking a personal inventory and then sharing it with somebody else, which is the most horrifying thing most drunks and druggies have ever faced. We can face Mm -hmm. hordes of enemies instead of sharing our whole self with somebody else. And then, as you said, the response is very often in a supportive functioning group like that. Oh, really? Okay. I did that twice. (laughs) That was my experience. I was like, aren't you going to, aren't you going to hate me? Please hate me for these horrible, Mm -hmm. horrible things I've hidden for 20 years. Mm-hmm. I think people want other people to do the thing that they're doing to themselves. Because if you're sitting there hating yourself, you really want other people to endorse that and reinforce that and and make it feel okay. That Because if somebody else hates you, then you've proven you, that you're right Absolutely. and all those sorts of things. But there's just this whole complexity to the human system where everything that we develop, and I mean, I get so frustrated with functional medicine because it's supposed to be preventative, but we're not preventing anything at this moment in time. We're still emergency medicine in a sense mm-hmm. because people are so screwed up from the beginning. Um, but there is that sense of, you know, how do we allow everything to be without layering on all of this completely nonsense meaning making that we've done with our left brain? Because our left brain is really intent on contextualizing anything. It will. It doesn't matter. And there are studies which prove, you know, studies where people have had, you know, the corpus callosum, so the the joining bit between the left and right brain severed, and they'll be shown a picture just to their right brain with their left eye. It's very complicated, but they'll just be shown. And their left brain will make up a completely nonsense story about it just to make the nervous system feel okay about it. So most of the stuff we tell ourselves in our head is absolute nonsense. And there's that old phrase, don't believe everything you think. Right. And I'm like, just, just yes, absolutely don't. And that's why we need other people. It's like, oh, here's a person who's a wall to throw stuff at, to bounce stuff off, to see what actually sticks. And having that level of feedback, you're never going to do that if you're kind of like, oh, but somebody might do X, Y, Z. Somebody might judge. Somebody might criticize. And I'm not suggesting you walk up to somebody on the street and say, just for a second, can I share my deepest, darkest thoughts with yeah. you? Because <laughs> like, you never know. They could be busy. They could be running and not give you the time of day. But in those settings where everyone feels like their thing is the worst thing. It's so lovely to offload. And then people go, 
sorry, what, you think that's bad? Like, I, I've got this other deep, dark demon. Oh, here's my dragon that I've been nurturing since I was three years old. And you just get to do, like, comparative demon swapping mm-hmm. and kind of realize that, yeah, maybe some are darker than others. Yeah, maybe some are kind of like, ooh, okay, that was probably a little bit heavier. But everyone's got one. Everyone has their little dark bits that they're like, oh, my God, I did that. I mm-hmm. thought that. I said that. I, I was that person in that moment. I love Don't Believe Everything You Think because we, uh, we are we're taught things by people who are flawed human beings. Mm-hmm. Some are se- severely flawed, and they teach us things that become our narrative for life. A friend of mine in the recovery program said, if you treated me the way I treat myself, I would kill you because it's so abusive, perpetuation of mm-hmm. abuse inside the person, from our skin in, which mm-hmm. is what we at Impact talk about all the time, from our skin in, your body, your mind, your heart, your soul, they're all inside. They're all things mm-hmm. you can deal with and nothing else you can control in the world. But sometimes that internal landscape becomes a very scary, harsh place because we believe it's supposed to be. It's, it's complex, mm. like you said. And mm. how do uh, I want people to be able to reach you. I want people to be able to, and I can actually say it, but I can't spell it, for Aletheia Clinic. Can you, well, can you yeah, help us understand where, where you're coming from uh, with the clinic and, and, and how, to, how to see more of your ideas? So the reason I've called my clinic and all of my companies are under some kind of name that's linked to unveiling. So my parent company is called Unveil Enterprises. So everything I do is about uncovering. And Aletheia actually means truth or unconcealedness, which is why it's there. However, I'm aware that people can't spell it. So I've created a, a short link. So if you just go to a bit.ly link forward slash truth clinic, don't even make you spell Aletheia. It's really easy. You will find um, all of the work that I do at Aletheia. And what I try to do within my one-to-one services is have the functional medicine physiological workup on ramp of, you know, what's going on with your body, like health optimization concerns or just who do you want to be, what's happening. And we do some kind of physiological stuff, health monitoring stuff, you know, track heart rate variability and all those sorts of things. But a lot of the work that I do with people is holding a container where their entire evolution is taken care of. As in, I create a container where we can explore all of these dark avenues, the why did these patterns develop? The, okay, this pattern shows up every time this completely non-threatening thing happens. Let's not go back and dig into why. Let's just try and be in the moment and allow a different response to emerge. And I take clients through that slow process of becoming themselves, unconcealing who they Mm. really are under the surface. I love that, becoming yourself. Like I talked about earlier, the perfect design. We each have a design. We each have this perfect self, whether it's God-created or evolutionary. That's not my debate. I'm not going to try and prove anything to anybody. I just say there's a design in there. And when we Mm. get in alignment with that design, it is effortless. Life is flow you're dealing mm. with becoming a seal or becoming a librarian because it's the right thing for how you're designed and life and it doesn't become a struggle. Life doesn't have to be a struggle all the time, but I've kind of specialized in struggle because of holding myself back. <laughs> Well, and just to say, you've given me a lot of compliments, certainly at the beginning of this, and I just want to make sure it's clear to all of your listeners that that mine was not a linear path of, oh, I'm going to do this the right way, and I'm going to take this certification and do this thing and do this thing. Mine's been a good deal of struggle too. But my goal is that I did all the struggle and have created a whole structure so that people don't have to. And it's not because I don't think people will always face a little bit of a dark night of the soul and have to go through some of the stuff to actually evolve. But if you go through that stuff and you actually have somewhere to go to find 
healthy, organic, supportive answers as opposed to your, you know, certified, certified life coach who's done nothing yeah. and, you know, <laughs> just put life coach on their Instagram bio and like yes. that's it. It's that kind of thing. It's always, and I, I don't yell at the people in the community who are doing it wrong. I just create pillars and institutions over here where it's a beacon that people can look to and follow and find when they need those sorts of answers. Well, this is absolutely powerful stuff, and I want people to go back to. Can you say it one more time for the domain, the, the URL, to find you? Yes, it's a Bitly link, so it's bit.ly forward slash Truth Clinic. Fantastic, thank. And we can get to the podcast and your social presence through there. You can get to there. You can also just stalk me on social media. I'm Victoria L. Fenton on Instagram, and everything goes on my Instagram and all of my various things there. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Victoria. This is really, no, really, really life-changing stuff for people, and I want them to hear it and understand it and re- re- re-consume it and begin to, to, to grow out, to go beyond their limits with this. Thank you. My my guest, my beloved guests, thank you so much for tuning in today. And this is, again, I can't strongly enough emphasize, this is your starting point. This is your foundation. This is your go back and say, okay, reconsider, open the mind, let these things be possible, and you will have immense potential going forward. Thank you so much for attending, and we'll see you next time on Beyond Your Limits. Thanks for joining us on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois the podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. For more information about Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, visit impactactual.com. And be sure to subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to listen so you'll never miss a show. We'll see you next time on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois.